Hello, hello. Welcome back and thank you for tuning in to the Climate Literacy Show. In order to fight for the environment, we're going to need to know a little bit about the environment. I'm Max Tepper. My goal is to speak to experts to demystify the science around climate change and environmental hazards and break it down for the average citizen like you and me. On the show today, I have Stephanie Prufer, an oceans campaigner at the Center for Biological Diversity, similar position to Delia Ridge Creamer, who was previously on the show. But this episode, we won't be talking so much about plastic. To check out that episode, you can go to kpcradio.com. Rather, the bulk of this episode will be focused on the harmful effects of fossil fuels on our oceans. Before being an oceans campaigner, my guest graduated from Duke University, was a research assistant at the World Food Policy Center, and a field organizer at Green Corps. And the list goes on and on. Steph, Stephanie, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much, Max. So I always ask my guests this before we uh, start getting into the meat and potatoes of the discussion, but did you always have an affinity for environmentalism? And when did you find out that this is what you wanted to do with your life? Always. <laughs> um, I was, as a little kid, I'd be walking up and down the beach looking at people and they threw trash in the sand and um, always knew that I had this fire burning inside of me to do something about uh, protecting our planet, the species in it, and our climate, and ourselves, to be frank. Um, had followed mostly a you know science path for a lot of my time in school, but then realized that I needed to shift and take action, um, which is how I've come to campaigning. Great. And one thing about environmentalism that has always fascinated me and scared me at the same time is learning just how interconnected ecosystems of the world are. And as an undergraduate researcher, you studied uh, muscles, not muscles in the body, but like clams and, and how they affect their environment. What did that project, as well as any other projects you've worked on, teach you about the interconnectedness of all ecosystems and environments and how something so seemingly insignificant can actually have a large impact. Yeah, our systems are totally interconnected, whether that's, you know, in a salt marsh, the way that one organism can trigger an entire, um, you know, we call it a trophic cascade, so it can trigger an entire effect throughout the entire ecosystem, but also between ecosystems, humans and um, species and the way that we're connected. Um, you know, that pro in that project specifically, I was going to the marsh every single day, counting snails and counting crabs. And honestly, it wasn't the most exciting work <laughs> to get, you know, deep and knee deep in mud um, and do that work. But uh, it was really important because it showed that, you know, just one thing being off. So not having enough muscles means that you don't have uh, you know, the substrate for other organisms to use as habitat. Um, and then that in turn can affect, you know, the bigger megafauna that would be relying on those species for food. It, they just, they just can't exist. Right. So it disrupts the whole food chain. Exactly. So I wanted to start off the discussion about fossil fuels and oceans, uh, talking about climate change and global warming concepts the public is already somewhat familiar with. Can you explain the connection between greenhouse gases, specifically carbon dioxide and the ocean? Yeah, so our oceans are an incredibly important carbon sink. So they absorb almost a third of all of the carbon dioxide in our atmosphere. Um, and when that carbon gets absorbed, it actually changes the chemistry of the ocean, changes the pH of the ocean and makes it more acidic. Um, and so we've been seeing a really big increase in ocean acidification over the past couple of decades uh, because we've seen an increase in our CO2 emissions in our atmosphere. 
And why is ocean acidification such a problem? A lot of organisms like that have the shells around them, so like clams and mussels, but also coral, um, they need an optimal pH in the ocean to be able to build those skeletal structures. And when the ocean is too acidic, they just can't build those structures. And a lot of those organisms are at the base of the food chain and a lot of other organisms rely on them. Um, so if you, we don't have them, then the other species can't survive. Right, right. And how can ocean acidification affect humans? Well, it affects, you know, the amount of food available in the ocean, um, because if, if you don't have enough shellfish and well, we can't eat those if they're not around, but other, other fish can eat them. Um, and so it's affecting the populations of other species. Um, and it's also impacting the way that, you know, if our ocean can't absorb more carbon dioxide, then our temperature in our atmosphere is going to keep going up. Right. And plus with less fish, all the prices go up and people are going to have to start spending more and it creates problems everywhere. So um, before fossil fuels are in the air, of course, they're in the ground in the form of oil. And much of the fear about oil is, is in the event that it leaks and spills. So, and you do a lot of work covering oil spills. So how can oil spills disrupt an ecosystem? Yeah, I mean, there oil spills are incredibly detrimental to you know species. They can attach to the coats of different animals, and that can impact their ability to reproduce, their ability to communicate, their ability to feed, um, and it, it affects their behavior, um, and it can affect populations of those species. And oil spills are really hard to clean up. And even when we do use chemicals to try to clean up the oil spills, those are also incredibly detrimental both to human health, but also um, the health of the animals in our ocean. Right. And I always wondered, like, how do they, how do they clean up oil spills? Like, I know you said with chemicals, but what exactly do they do with them? Yeah, so their uh, their chemical called, it's called a dispersant. So basically what it does is it breaks the oil pieces into smaller and smaller pieces. Um, sort of like when you use detergent and that detergent, you put it on a fatty pan and it breaks down those fat molecules into smaller, smaller and smaller chunks, making it easier for you to wash it off. Um, so that's what happens in a lot of times with oil spills, but the chemicals that are used are incredibly toxic um, and can cause you know, a wide ranging of health and um, yeah, health problems to humans and, and animals. So is it kind of like, you're just kind of diluting the oil. Is that a good way to put it? Yeah, you're like breaking it down. <laughs> you're cutting it up into really small pieces. Okay, but it's still there though. It's there and then uh, sometimes, you know, they can contain it, put like big booms that contain it in a certain area. And mm -hmm. But um, yeah, I mean, once an oil spill has happened, the effects are irreversible. You've already affected the ecosystem and it's gonna be, it's, it's almost impossible to get it back to what it was before. Oh, wow. Okay. And oil spills would obviously negatively affect the businesses and communities near the spills, right? Certainly. Yeah. I mean, when you drill, you spill. That's a slogan I like to use. And when you spill, you're affecting the local communities, you know, the beach towns that rely on coastal ecosystems to survive through tourism or, you know, the fishing industry. And it, it really impacts those communities. Right. There's a Medium article you wrote 
not medium as in right size, but uh, on medium.com. And, and you mentioned that the blunt nosed lizard, leopard lizard, the California tiger salamander, and the San Joaquin kit fox would all be endangered due to uh, Exxon's trucking plan, which is a, a route that they want to build to move oil from one place to another. Uh, these animals are, aren't close to the beach, though. So they're not, it wouldn't seem like they're endangered by offshore drilling, but you point out that that's the opposite of what's true. How, how can that be? Even though that they're not near the beach, they're still endangered by offshore drilling. Yeah, so in the, the case of the Exxon trucking proposal, they want to restart their oil platforms and truck that oil. So they'd be trucking the oil through really important habitat for some of the species that I mentioned in that article that are, you know, land-based species. And so when you truck oil, you can spill that oil. And, and in fact, trucking oil is one of the most dangerous ways to transport it and often results in oil spills. Um, and even just a small oil spill could be affecting the populations of these species. And two big campaigns you're working on are protests against Exxon's trucking plan and uh, Plains's, the, the company Plains plan to reopen offshore drilling off of the Santa Barbara coast. Uh, can you briefly summarize why these plans could be so dangerous other than what you've mentioned about those uh, animals and but add on to that. Yeah, totally. I think the, you know, the first big reason is that we are facing a climate crisis. We cannot be considering like oil drilling anymore. We need to keep oil in the ground. We need to stop our oil addiction. Um, and we can't be reviving these old offshore platforms off of Santa Barbara's coast. Um, and both of these proposal, Exxon's trucking plan and the Plains Pipeline plan would allow three offshore drilling platforms owned by Exxon and the Santa Barbara coast to start drilling oil out of the ground again. Um, and these platforms are extremely old. They are almost, you know, if they're not past their expected lifespan, they're nearing their expected lifespan. And we know that the older a, a rig gets, the more likely it is to have a spill um, or have any other kind of accident, which obviously has huge ramifications for the marine environment. So, we can't be drilling anymore. That's the first point. Um, we need to stop drilling and keep oil on the ground for the sake of our you know, climate crisis. Um, and then the second reason is the just any kind of spill or accident as a result of the drilling of the oil or transporting it via pipeline or via truck um, would have really big implications for species and the ecosystems in Santa Barbara County. Right. And is there any difference in offshore drilling and the drilling you see like with the big pumps, you know, that, that you see on land? Is there any like major difference other than the fact that one's on land and one is in water? Yeah. So what you're seeing on land is probably fracking and fracking can happen in the ocean as well. Like offshore fracking is just a way to um, like expel oil and gas from, the, from it's a technology used to get oil and gas out of the out of the ground, whether that's in the ocean or, or on land. And those technologies are pretty similar and both use very harmful chemical additives um, that are toxic. Um, but no, I mean, in terms of the impacts, the climate impacts, we should be keeping oil on the ground, whether that's off of our coasts or on our land. And can you go more in depth about Plains' poor track record when it comes to uh, 
as you put it, their bad safety record and history of violations, as well as the felony they were charged with for failing to properly maintain their pipeline? Yeah, so the reason why Exxon's platforms off of Santa Barbara Coast right now are not online is because in 2015, the pipeline that used to carry that oil ruptured, and that pipeline was owned by Plains, Plains Pipeline, the company. Um, and when we did investigations, it turns out that the pipeline was corroded and um, Plains had responsibility over um, that spill and that accident. And so we can't let a company that has this bad track, re track record um, rebuild a coastal pipeline that has very similar risks. And of course, um, when it spills, there was a part in one of the articles that I read that uh, you sent me that these often affect uh, lower income communities and communities of color, is that right? Yeah, I mean, like most fossil fuel infrastructure is located in, you know, low income communities or communities of color. And it's a really big environmental justice problem. We see the same thing with petrochemical production of plastics. Um, you know, these facilities are often located in, in um, environmental justice communities and therefore often end up impacting those same communities as well, either through the pollution that they're emitting in the process of production or if there is a major accident. Right. So quoting again, uh, some of the articles that you sent me, there were 128 deaths attributed to offshore drilling industry alone in a seven year time span between 2003 and 2010. The communities near these offshore drilling sites suffer as a, as a result of it, particularly in the Gulf, Gulf Coast. They develop health problems at higher rates than the national average. Uh, thousands of dead marine life and local ecosystems forever change as a result of any oil spill, but especially the, the deep water horizon spill in 2010. But in spite of all that, on March 21st, 2018, 77 million acres of federal waters were sold for oil drilling, making it the largest fossil fuel lease sale of federal waters in US history. We, as a country, as a government, as a people, whatever, we understand the damage that drilling can cause. But why do we keep running into the mistake of drilling and more and more? And is there any hope to stop this? Yeah, we actually stopped that dangerous plan proposed by Trump back in 2018 um, to open up, you know, most of our oceans to drilling. That was the result of a really, you know, I, I want to say the word aggressive, but it, it was more, you know, very collaborative campaign. The environmental community came together and really aggressively um, called on Trump to not issue this program to open our oceans to drilling. And it was a campaign that relied on the support from you know, people like me and you, but also from the business community and also uh, members of Congress and staffers in the Hill um, and media coverage and events. So it was a, a full blown campaign that added pressure onto the administration. And ultimately, after years of fighting, we actually never saw the final version of Trump's offshore drilling plan, which is a major win um, for, for the United States and, and for the environmental community and for coastal communities, too. Um, and to answer your question, why we keep running into this problem, you know, the fossil fuel industry still has tremendous political impact. Um, they are funding a lot of the campaigns for our members of Congress, and they have very powerful lobbyists on the Hill as well, who keep, you know, their interests alive. 
Um, and the fossil fuel industry also has a lot of subsidies and these are perpetuating the industry. Uh, but the era of offshore oil and the era of oil, frankly, is over and we need to be transitioning to other systems. Right, right. So I want to move into some of uh, the other activism that doesn't necessarily have to do so much with oil, but uh, there are some policies that your organization and yourself would like to see enacted. For example, the Whale Protection Act of 2021, which is a, a California bill. Um, can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, so whales, you know, going back to our beginning of this conversation, when you asked me about, you know, the climate change impacts on the ocean, whales are actually a really important piece to the health of our oceans. Um, they feed at, you know, a depth, so they feed in the bottom of the ocean, and then they come up. Um, and it's silly to say this, but then they poop. And when they poop, they're feeding phytoplankton. Um, and phytoplankton are the little organisms that are actually absorbing the carbon dioxide and in turn um, creating oxygen that we're breathing. Um, and so whales are needed for that. It's called a whale pump. So for that whole nutrient cycling to happen, you need whales. And then when the whale dies, it often falls to the bottom of the ocean again. Um, and that also provides a lot of nutrients for species. Um, so whales are incredibly important and we need to be working to protect them. Um, several species of whales have seen recovery um, since the 1970s when you know, whaling was banned in the United States, um, but a few populations are still incredibly endangered. Um, off of California's coast, there are a few populations of humpback whales that are at you know, hundreds of individuals, like one population is at less than 800 individuals. So meaning that one death is significantly impacting that population's ability to survive. Um, and one of the major threats to whales is entanglement in fishing gear. Um, when, especially in trap fisheries, so crabs and lobsters, when you put a trap in the middle of the ocean, there's a really big line that runs from the bottom of the trap to the top. And whales, it's like when whales are going through those traps, it's like going through a obstacle course where they're trying to avoid the lines. Um, and when a line catches on them, it can cause, you know, small injuries that can amount to bigger ones over time and infections over time. But it also can wrap around whales' heads, around their fins, impairing their ability to swim and feed and survive. Um, and here in California, we are seeing you know, really incredible work uh, being done by, there's a, there's a new bill that just was introduced in the California uh, Assembly, and it's called the Whale Entanglement Prevention Act. And it would, um, by 2025, fishing gear in California for trap fisheries would need to be converted to a really cool new technology called ropeless technology where basically you're not creating an obstacle course of ropes in the ocean, um, but rather it's like you deploy the rope or a buoy when you need to find your trap again, and you're able to you know, continue fishing while at the same time protecting these important whale populations. Right, and that bill is just in California, but is there a push to see that implemented on a national level? Yeah, ropeless fishing gear needs to be adopted, you know, across the country and across across the globe. Um, in on the East Coast, North Atlantic right whales are extremely, you know, they they have a, a really small population. They're endangered too. They have around 
uh, 360 individuals left and they're also threatened by um, fishing. And we need to see ropeless technology being used all across the US to prevent these entanglements. So are there other inhumane practices that, that the public should know about when it comes to fishing? I, I know fishing nets are a huge um, controversial topic right now, but do you know of anything else that, that can disrupt ecosystems just as much as fishing nets? You know, if we're talking just about whales, the other big threat is our, our ship strikes. Um, so, you know, when you have these big fishing lanes, um, a lot of whales end up being hit or, you know, hit and then injured or killed by vessels. It can, you know, when a, when a whale gets hit by a vessel, it can cause, you know, blood clots or fractures and that over time can lead to a whale's death. And then obviously if you have a direct propeller strike, it can result in blood loss and, you know, more instant death. Um, but ship strikes are a really big problem too. We are actively pushing for um, slower, a limit on the speed that vessels can go through shipping lanes where there are a lot of whales present uh, so that you can more easily, you have more of an opportunity to avoid um, interaction with the whale. Right. Okay. And then also I wanted to touch on one of the other big projects that you're working on, which is Plastic Free President. We covered that uh, a couple episodes ago, but for those of you at home that didn't listen to that episode, it's a coalition of 600 organizations that are urging President Biden to enact policies to help us transition off of our plastic dependency. Uh, what, what are some of the policies that you guys want to see uh, implemented? Yeah, so there are eight main pieces of the Plastic Free President platform, which go throughout the entire life cycle of plastic. So from the moment, you know, the fossil fuel is extracted from the ground, which is then going to become the feedstock for making the plastics all the way until the plastic becomes waste and is in our waste stream and is either, you know, incinerated or dumped in a landfill or exported to face a really similar fate in another country. And um, the, the eight actions address every single piece of that life cycle. So one of the most important pieces of it is that we're calling on Biden to issue a moratorium on new or expanded petrochemical facilities. So these are facilities that make plastics. Um, and we know that we need to do this for our climate, but also because a lot of these facilities are located in low income or communities of color that are facing the brunt of the pollution. Right. And are these these eight actions, are they executive orders or are they stuff that that has to go through Congress as well? So the plan specifically is uh, actions that Biden or his administration can take without action from Congress. So we recognize that longer term solutions are going to have to be developed in Congress, but there is actually quite a bit that Biden and you know, his administration can do to quickly start curbing the plastic pollution crisis because we don't have time to, we don't have time to waste anymore. Right. All right. I see. And are, do you guys have any uh, plans to, to enact policies through Congress as well? Are you guys working on, on both fronts? 
Yeah, so we're actually pretty excited because a few weeks ago, a like monumental plastics bill was introduced in Congress called the Break Free from Plastic Pollution Act. It's the first you know, comprehensive bill of its kind that has been introduced. Um, and it, it also addresses plastics through its entire life cycle. And it includes in the bill, it has one of the sections is a temporary pause on um, the permitting for newer expanded petrochemical facilities while studies are conducted for uh, about the impacts of these facilities on local communities and the climate and to give agencies time to update regulations that are outdated. Okay, that sounds good. Well, that about sums it up for today's episode. I want to thank you once again for coming on to the show. Thank you so much, Max. Thank you for having me. You guys can follow the Center for Biological Diversity's Twitter account, specifically their oceans account, which is at Endangered Ocean. Check out also the Center for Biological Diversity, which I've shouted out a thousand times on this on this radio show. Check out Plastic Free President. There's a lot of organizations on there that are doing important work, including the Center for Biological Diversity. Check out Stephanie's article on medium.com titled Five Animals Threatened by Exxon's Trucking Plan. Thank you so much for tuning in and I will see you guys next time.